Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to the Mikra A Kodesh Holy Convocations series. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentaries. Note that all quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible Translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary for today was updated on October 5th of 2006. Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2, which have been serving as my theme verses for this particular series, read this way. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as holy convocations, are my designated times. Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor, daber el b'nei Yisrael va'amarta alehim. Moade Adonai asher tikra'u otam mikra'e kodesh elehem moadai. Let's read now a relevant passage so that we can uh, get an understanding, a basic understanding of this particular holiday. I want to read from Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 36 out of David Stern's version. It reads this way, quote, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, on the fifteenth day of this seventh month is the feast of Sukkot for seven days to Adonai. On the first day is to be a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. For seven days you are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. On the eighth day you are to have a holy convocation and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. It is a day of public assembly. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. End quote. So we see logistically right up front, this is a seven-day festival with an eighth day added on the very end to cap the entire holiday off. We'll talk a little bit about um, maybe why the eighth day has been tacked on to the end. I can tell you right now it's known variously by Hoshana Rabbah, the great day of praising. Um, as well as um, Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day of assembly. And in some cases, the rabbis have even referred to this day as Simchat Torah, rejoicing in the Torah. Now I actually carry a, commenta uh, a commentary on this website under the Holy Convocation series, which I'm going to, of course, teach on 
um, probably in about a week here or so. And it's called um, Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day, uh, or Simchat Torah, rejoicing of the Torah. So listen for that commentary. Or you can go to the website right now and read it. It is available right on the uh, graftedin.com website under the um, commentaries slash feast days. And then scroll to the bottom. And uh, right under Sukkot, you'll see Shmini Atzeret, okay? Let's keep talking about Sukkot, though. So this festival is called Sukkot. Kind of an odd word there. Just what exactly is a Sukkot anyway? This is the usual question that I receive around this time of year from people that I meet. What's a Sukkot? (laughs) Well, this word is actually the plural form of the Hebrew word translated as booth or tabernacle or tent or even hut. Um, I suppose we could translate the word um, uh, as a portable structure or temporary structure. So it's singular in the Hebrew is sukkah, and uh, the word sukkah is a feminine word. So feminine plural Hebrew words end up with the suffix ot, thus sukkah turns into sukkot, booth turns into booths, or tabernacle turns into tabernacles. And of course, based on the command to dwell in temporary booths for seven days, from verse 42 and 43 of Leviticus 23, we can see why Hashem has this feast called by this name. Moreover, the Torah mentions that this festival, in connection with the end of the year, um, is uh, to be a time remembered by Israel. End of the year. Now, it mentions this term in at least two significant locations. Let me digress for a little bit. I want to chase a rabbi. Um, there is a, um, a common disagreement within Messianic versus traditional uh, well, actually, this disagreement is just within Messianic camps, because within traditional Judaism, the term Rosh Hashanah, when, a talking, when referring to the end of the year, doesn't seem to cause any consternation. But within Messianic camps, you have two streams of, of thought um, being uh, discussed. You have one stream of thought that says the end of the year is um, not Rosh Hashanah. The end of the year would be Pesach, because that's when God told us to start the cycle of counting our years. Thus, the beginning and the end of the year would both be near Pesach. That is the first view held within most Messianic camps. Another view comes along, which is similar to the traditional Judaic view, that says, well, what about calling Yom Truah, which takes place in the seventh month of the year, during a Tishrei, the month that we're in right now, um, what about calling this time of year the end of the year, Rosh Hashanah. Um, Of course, that's what the rabbis opt for, that particular title, Rosh Hashanah. And so many messianics feel some consternation because, hey, the Bible doesn't call Yom Troah Rosh Hashanah, so why should we? And so we've got this disagreement going on between the two camps. Let me just address that issue very briefly since we are now talking about Sukkot and this bears relevance here. Exodus 23, 14-17 from David Stern's version reads this way, quote, Three times a year you are to observe a festival for me. Keep the festival of matzah for seven days, as I ordered you. You are to eat matzah at the time determined in the month of Aviv, for it was in that month that you left Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Next, the festival of harvest, the firstfruits of your efforts sowing in the field. And last, the festival of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the fields the results of your efforts. Three times a year all your men are to appear before the Lord Adonai." This verse alone tells us uh, some important things about the biblical calendar. It tells us that three times a year God instructed at least the males to appear before the Lord. This, of course, would be the designated spot in Jerusalem later on to be known as the temple. 
you are to appear before me and don't show up empty-handed. The three times a year are at the beginning, during fe- the uh, festival of, of uh, Matzah, right around the middle of the year, uh, the springtime, you know, just after the springtime, uh, during the festival of um, Shavuot. And then near the end, or the third time, I want you to show up near the festival of ingathering. That's exactly what Exodus 23, 14 through 17 just discussed for us. And to prove it, Deuteronomy chapter... Let me turn to it real quick. This isn't in my commentary, but let me just pull this passage out as well. Deuteronomy 16, um, starting in verse 16, says, Three times a year all your males should appear before Hashem, your God, in the place that he will choose. And then it names the three times on the festival of Matzot, on the festival of Shavuot, and on the festival of Sukkot. And he shall not appear before Hashem empty-handed, everyone according to what he can give, according to the blessing that Hashem your God gives you. That's uh, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16 and 17. So we see that three times a year, Shalosh Regalim, uh, we are to appear before the Lord. And these three times are once near the early part of the year, which is uh, during the springtime, once right around the middle, which is Sukkot, I'm sorry, uh, Shavuot, and then once near the end of this huge cycle, near um, uh, Sukkot. Exactly, at Sukkot. Let's read another passage. Exodus 34, 18-34 reads, quote, this is again Stern's version, Keep the festival of matzah by eating matzah as I have ordered you for seven days during the month of Aviv, for it was in the month of Aviv that you came out from Egypt. Everything that is first from the womb is mine. All of your livestock you are to set aside for me. The males, the firstborn of cattle and flock. The firstborn of a donkey must redeem with a lamb. If you don't redeem it, break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you are to redeem, and no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Six days you will work, but on the seventh day you are to rest. Even in plowing time and harvest season, you are to rest. Look at verse 22. Observe the festival of Shavuot with the first gathered produce of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your men are to appear before the Lord Adonai, the God of Israel. For I am going to expel nations ahead of you and expand your territory, and no one will even covet your land when you go up to appear before Adonai your God three times a year." Now, if you have the written commentary, you'll see that in the first passage and in the second passage, I underlined two phrases. Did you notice them? In the first reference, in the uh, Exodus 23, 14 through 17, it states that the festival of ingathering is to occur, quote, at the end of the year, end quote, which, of course, you're probably wondering what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew reads, Betzetashana. The second passage the one from Exodus 34, 18-34, states that the festival of ingathering is to occur, quote, at the turn of the year, end quote, which this time in the Hebrew reads, Tukufatashana. Now, if you're wondering what these Hebrew terms mean, let me just explain them to you. We already know what the festival of ingathering is. That's the time that we're discussing right now. That's Sukkot, the ingathering of the um, wheat harvest. That's exactly what the uh, um, the Torah said in Exodus 34:22. Observe the festival of Shavuot with the. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me try that again. The festival of Shavuot is the um, wheat harvest, and the uh, barley harvest would have been the uh, the, the the Pesach. Um, the time that we're looking at, however, the festival of in gathering at the turn of the year is Sukkot. 
that is the third time that we're supposed to meet with God. The first time during Matzah, second time during um, Shavuot, and the third time during Sukkot. We already established that from the both Exodus passages, as well as reading the Deuteronomy passage. So we've got these two phrases now, Common to both phrases is the term Hashanah. You're hearing that, right? Which is similar to Rosh Hashanah, if you're uh, 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 catching it there. Hashanah naturally and normally refers to the, which is Ha, and year, which is Shana, thus Hashanah. But I suppose right now you're scratching your head and saying, what do the terms Betzet and Tukufat mean? What are they trying to tell us? Well, the first term carries the root word Yatza, which according to the Brown Driver Briggs and Jacinius Lexicon, the BDB, means, quote, to go out, come out, exit, or go forth. That's what the term Yatza is trying to explain to us. The second term carries the root word Tukufa, which according to the same BDB means, quote, coming round, circuit of time or space, a turning, end quote. Are you beginning to catch it here, people? The um, These times of years, this festival at the end gathering is referred to under the terms Betzeit Shana and Tukufat Shana, which Betzeit refers to the going out of the year, and Tukufat refers to the turning of the year. So now, given what we know about the Rabbi's Talmudic decision to refer to Yom Tulah as Rosh Hashanah, a time when the agricultural cycle is emphasized to include harvesting and, and other, other things, we can now appreciate their recognizing this time of year as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. Are you beginning to see it here? This simple exegesis of scripture helps to clear up the tension, I believe, between those who feel that the rabbis have overstepped their authority by referring to the festival of Yom Tra by its more familiar name, Rosh Hashanah. Even though the term Rosh Hashanah is not listed in the Leviticus 23 passage, or the Exodus passages, or the Deuteronomy passage, the term Rosh Hashanah is not showing up here. Now, it does actually show up later on in the Bible, uh, but it but it, it may or may not refer to this time. It actually uh, probably refers to Yom Kippur. Uh, but this this helps to um, clear up some of the tension. Uh, because some people feel that the rabbis have, again, overstepped their bounds and their authority by calling Yom Torah Rosh Hashanah. And, uh, again, maybe those who feel that the Bible gives warrant for such usage of these terms will gain some insight from the uh, short little study that we just did a moment ago. At any rate, back to the subject at hand. I asked one question earlier. You know, just what exactly is a Sukkot anyway? We're talking about Sukkot, and that's one of the questions that people ask. What exactly is a Sukkot? Well, your second obvious question probably is, why in the world would Hashem want His people to dwell in tabernacles, or dwell in a tabernacle for seven days? I mean, what's so important about the concept of dwelling anyway? Why, why does God want us to remember that we camped out? Now, I'm going to answer this question at the end of our study, but for now, I want the readers to know, and the listeners, that the idea behind the sukkah as a temporary dwelling place, keep in mind that the sukkah is a temporary shelter. It's not designed to be a permanent structure. But the sukkah as a temporary dwelling place is actually a somewhat major theme of the Bible, a theme which I will discuss shortly. Sukkot is known, however, in Judaism by a few other names as well. We already mentioned a few of them. Uh, The Feast of Tabernacles. Um, It's also known as the Season of Our Joy. 
the festival of ingathering, the feast of the nations, the festival of dedication, and the festival of lights. Now, if you're recognizing those last two terms, festival of dedication and festival of lights, and your mind is starting to race towards Hanukkah, or Chenukah, well then you're not wrong. Okay, We'll say something about that later as well. Now, I only want to develop the temporary dwelling place theme for our study. From this commentary, the reader, or the listener, will soon see that there's actually a lot of quote-unquote messianic redemptive history tied up in the concept of dwelling from God's perspective. Hashem has had a grand plan of becoming the one and only God of his people from the beginning of history. We've talked about how that man separated himself from God from that first um, disobedient incident in the garden when God said, don't um, eat of this particular tree and man disobeyed. And so from that point, man has been distanced from God spiritually and course even physically because God drove man out of the garden so God has set into motion his divine plan of repairing the breach bringing man and himself back together of course God is the only one who can repair the breach so having said all that I'm going to work from a basic outline this time all right if you have the written notes we're at the top of page two let's go ahead and examine my main points for now Um, again if you don't have the the written notes just just FYI, if you don't have them, go to our website at graftedin.com, and they are available in PDF format. Otherwise, you can always write to me at um, yeshua613 at hotmail.com, and I'll send you a copy either in PDF format or in Word document if you'd like. Okay. So, here we are at the top of page two. Let me go ahead and describe our outline, and then we'll get right into the study. Okay. Point number one, Sukkot past history. We're going to look at that. And under point number one, we've got subpoints A, B, and C. Point A is the reference to Exodus 25, verse 1, 2, 8, and 9. Point B is a reference to Leviticus 23, 34 through 43, as well as chapter 26, verse 11 and 12 of Leviticus. And then point C under past history is Ezekiel 37, verse 27 and 28. And in parentheses, I have the word prophetic. Point number two in the outline is Sukkot present reality, with again subpoint A, B, and C below that. Subpoint A is a reference to John chapter one verse fourteen, John fourteen twenty three B, and John seventeen twenty three. Subpoint B is Hebrews eight verse one, verse two, and verse ten. And then subpoint C under point number two is Jeremiah thirty one verse thirty three, and then again in parentheses I've got the word prophetic. And then finally, subpoint number three is Sukkot future redemption. Again, three subpoints A, B, and C. First subpoint A is a reference to Romans eleven twenty-five and twenty-six. Subpoint B is Revelation twenty-one verse three, and subpoint C is Zechariah fourteen verse sixteen. Again, in parentheses, the word prophetic. Okay. With that, let's get into our study. This first section is entitled Sukkot. Past history. Now, I already quoted our theme verse for the Mikra E Kodesh series, which was Leviticus 23, 1 and 2. What I want to do real quick is I want to go backwards into the Torah to a time period before the giving of the instructions for the feasts. Back to when Hashem instructed the people to build him a tabernacle. Do you remember that time? 
Let's go back to Exodus chapter 25. That's in uh, Barashat Trumah. It's in the weekly Torah readings, if you recall. Let me pull open my art scroll Tanakh here and turn as well to Barashat Trumah. Exodus chapter 25. Okay. Now, um, in this particular uh, chapter, in this parasha, it talks about gathering materials together to construct a dwelling place for Hashem to live among His people as their one and only God. Remember, according to the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I alone am your God. Deuteronomy 6.4 Now, God said, Build it, and I will dwell among you. There's a specific Pasuk I want to um, single out for us to look at real quick. Twenty-five of uh, Exodus 25, verse 8. It says, They shall make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. Did you notice that? They shall make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. The Hebrew says, Va'asuli mikdash v'shachanti batocham. This phrase, Vashachanti Batocham. Vashachanti's root word is Shachan, which is the root word which means to dwell or dwelling or having dwelt, um, to, to take up residency. The next word, Batocham, simply means among them. But it's interesting because, according to the rabbis, this phrase, Vashachanti Batocham, since the object of the dwelling is the sanctuary. Well, isn't it interesting that when God says they shall make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them, that the normal way for understanding um, both Hebrew or English should be they shall make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among it. But toch. It should read va'asu li mikdash v'shachanti batoch. But the final um, maim on the end of that batocham uh, is the dwelling among people, the dwelling among persons, not just dwelling among the, 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 you know, the building itself. God didn't say build a tabernacle so I can dwell in the tabernacle. That's my point. Even the rabbis pick up all this in the translation. They shall make a sanctuary for me, a mikdash, so that I can, in, can dwell among them. Who's the them? The people. You see, God wants to dwell with us again. Just like it was in the garden. This tabernacle was to be put together, by the way, using materials that were freely and wholeheartedly contributed by the people of Israel, by Am Yisrael. That's why the Torah portion is called Truma. A Truma is a free will offering. It's something that is set aside with the explicit purpose of giving it back to Hashem. It's kind of like the example I gave when we studied uh, Parashat Truma. Was, um, the example I gave was, uh, like, let's say when I get paid, before I even have the opportunity to, to start spending the money, I might take a portion aside and set it off to the side and, and, and um, designate it um, uh, for the Lord, basically, and say, this is going to go to God. And when the time comes, I give that to him. That set-aside portion is a truma. Okay? And so God said, Moshe, tell the people, I want to dwell with them. I want to be with them again. I want to dwell close to them. Build me 
a place where I can draw close to my people. That's what the word shachan, uh, its root means. Shachan means to dwell close. In fact, we get the word for neighbor in Hebrew from the same root word, shachan. I want to dwell with you. The people were not to be forced to give so that the um, uh, the tabernacle would be built. So the first point that I want to make <clears throat> as we're doing our study here is I want to emphasize this first point. The building of the dwelling place was an act of free will. The people wanted it built and thereby contributed to its building. They wanted the same thing that God expressly stated that he wanted Build me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. So God said, from your heart, gather together the materials. What materials were we talking about? The why? By the way, the gold, the silver, the precious items. The things that, remember the Egyptians had favorably um, lent to them because God had caused the Egyptians to um, have favor towards the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt and therefore they freely gave them gold, precious materials, um, precious stones and things like that. So um, as we looking as we're looking here at uh, Exodus 25, only after this important detail of the people's free will, the act of their heart, uh, did Hashem's tabernacle uh, begin to take shape. Um, you know God would go on to state, that uh, I will dwell among them. Notice, make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. As one, the KJV actually puts, I will dwell among them. Okay, um, the uh, Stone Edition to that I'm looking at says, so that I may dwell, so that I may dwell. But God promises that He would. And in fact, if we go forward to Leviticus chapter 23. Um, where where our instructions for the Mikra A Kodesh are found, then we see that Hashem instructed the people to build Sukkot, the temporary dwelling booths, in memory of the what? The temporary dwelling places that they had while they were wandering in the desert. Okay? When they were wandering in the desert, God was with them. God promised that he would dwell with them. In fact, at the end of of uh, the book of Exodus after the um, tabernacle is built if you recall you can thumb there and look at it if you'd like at the end of the book of Exodus we find that um, Moshe had to leave the tent of the meeting because the glory of Hashem filled the tabernacle verses 34 and 35 of Exodus chapter 40 Moshe couldn't even enter the Ohel Moed the tent of meeting because the cloud was resting upon it and the, the Kavod Adonai the glory of the Lord was filling the, Mikta, uh, the Mishkan and so uh, God's presence moved in as it were it worked. When God said, build it and I will dwell among you, well, they built it and God moved in. So we know that the instructions were carried out. We know that the people gave and we know that Moshe's um, uh, supervision of the building of the tabernacle worked and we know the tabernacle was put together correctly. In fact, the opening part of Leviticus um, has God calling to Moshe Vaikra el Moshe Vaidebera Donai, a live me ohel moed le more. He called to Moses and Hashem spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, you See, God calls Moshe back into the ohel moed, the tent of the meeting, uh, where God's presence was in fact dwelling among his people. Okay? This was in the past. So Sukkot are designed, that the tabernacles themselves, are designed to be a reminder to the people 
that as they wandered through the desert, God dwelt with them. And even though they didn't have a permanent home yet, God was with them there. His presence was felt in the Mishkan. But the most important temporary dwelling place is this Mishkan, at least for the time being. For the, for the people of Israel, they needed God's dwelling place to be in the midst of them so they could understand that God was with them even as they wandered towards their homeland. This tabernacle that they interacted with was a place for them to realize that God's presence was going with them. To be sure, according to the past history that we're looking at, once the people built the tabernacle for Hashem, He was with them. He said He would dwell with them, and He was there. And the people beheld His Shekhinah. This is a Hebrew word which describes the manifest glory of God. It's a rabbinic term. Actually, it doesn't show up in your Bible. Shekhinah. Or as you've probably heard it pronounced in church circles, Shekhinah. This means the, the, the presence of God as we can tangibly see it or feel it. In fact, if you're hearing the word Shekhan in the word Shekhinah, then you're, you're, you're correct. The word Shekhinah shares the same root word as Mishkan. They have the same root word, and it's the same word that we read that we uh, read back in our Exodus 25 passage. Vaasuli mikdash vashachanti. Hear that word vashachanti, and I shall dwell, b'tocham among them. So let's keep reading. Um, we, we have God's dwelling presence with the people. In the prophecy of Ezekiel 37, verses 27 and 28, we see that Hashem is seen as once again saying, quote, that his home will be with them. Now notice, this reference is in the future tense. His home will be with them. What could he be talking about? After all, he had in fact dwelt among his people in the Exodus and Leviticus passages that we looked at. Isn't that accurate? That's past history. So how could God be telling the prophet, Yechizkeel, tell the people of Israel that my home will be with them one day? Let's read on and see if we can figure out what Hashem is trying to hint at, okay? This next section in my commentary is entitled, Sukkot Present Reality. Let's turn forward to the book of John. In John's opening account of Yeshua's ministry here on earth, we find a most revealing detail. Let me get my Hebrew version of John's passage. You can actually buy the New Testament in Hebrew. If you shop at, say, I believe Mardell's, you can get it there. It is actually a full Hebrew Bible, I must warn you. If you can't read Hebrew and you're relying on English translations, well, this one isn't going to help you. It is fully Hebrew from Genesis to Revelation. Let me turn now to the book of John uh, in this Hebrew version. It's actually published by the Bible Society in um, Bible Society in Israel. I think it runs about 25 or 30 bucks. Uh, it's not a bad investment if you can read Hebrew, by the way. Now, I want to turn here, and what we want to look at is that at chapter 1 of his gospel, we find a seemingly ordinary statement, until, that is, we examine the underlying Hebrew thought behind this statement. Now, here's what it says. Um, in verse 1, if you'll recall, let me pull out David Stern's version for the English of this. 
I could probably just quote this Pasik by memory from KJV, but I want to read it anyway. John 1.1, David Stern's version reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? That verse, by the way, is a very well-known verse among Christians, and a very beloved verse, and rightfully so. Let's read that verse in Hebrew real quick. Bereshit haya hadavar, v'hadavar haya im ha-Elohim, ve-Elohim haya hadavar. The word davar in Hebrew means word, and this was the word which John is telling us was with God and, and, and actually was God in the beginning. But what's really interesting is if we jump down to Pasuk 14, verse 14 of the same chapter, and read that Pasuk, that verse, it says, The Word became a human being and lived with us, and we saw his Shekhinah, the Shekhinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Okay, In Hebrew, that same Pasuk reads, Hadavar nihya basar Vashachan Batochinu Vaanachnu Rainu et Kavodo Kavod Bain Yahid Milfane Aviv Mele Chesed Veemet. Now, this verse that I just read in Hebrew, if you were listening very carefully to the first part of verse 14, then you probably heard our familiar word in Hebrew, Shachan. Did you listen for it? John four, John one fourteen. Hadavar nihya basar v'shachan b'tochinu, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt v'shachan. That's the word we heard in the Exodus twenty five passage when God says, "Build me a tabernacle, and I'll dwell among you." That's the same root word, shachan, where we get shachinah, dwelling presence. That's the same word, shachan, the root word, from where we get mishkan, the tabernacle. Are you beginning to see it here? This verse immediately brings to memory the indwelling manifest glory present in the earthly mishkan, the tabernacle. But remember, by John's time, the tabernacle had long since been replaced by a more permanent temple structure. So we no longer have a mishkan. We, no long, we now have a, uh, um, oh, what is the temple called? The, uh, the Beit HaMikdash, the, how, the holy house. Um, the house of the, of the tabernacle, <laughs> the Beit HaMikdash, um, the house of the dwelling. So this, this, this mishkan had given way to this more permanent structure known as the temple. Moreover, the Shekhinah of Hashem is reported, as we know, to have been seen displayed fully in the person of Yeshua, the Son of God. You can look up Colossians 2.9 and you'll see um, the reference there. So, we see in John 14.23... And if we jump all the way to John 17:23, then we see Yeshua stating that anyone who loves him will keep his words. The response is that the Father will demonstrate his love for the individual. And what will happen? Go read the verse in 17:23. It says that both of them, Father and Son, would come to make their abode with him. That's basically from the KJV, but I've kind of paraphrased it. The Father and the Son would take up residence with the individual. Now, we're beginning to see that this type of dwelling, where God comes to dwell among us, 
it's really a perfect one, isn't it? It lacks nothing. In fact, we might even suppose that this type of dwelling among men was indeed the complete revelation of Hashem's dwelling with men. Is this what we are, are really, really looking forward to? Where God says, I will dwell with men way back in Exodus? Is this what we're to expect? Or is there something else that we're still not seeing? You see, the book of Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that our great high priest Yeshua was quote-unquote a minister of the sanctuary and of the true Mishkan, the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man, end quote. Um, it's actually uh, Hebrews 8 verse 2 out of the KJV. Now, don't get me wrong. It is true that our Messiah's atoning death brought about the present reality that any individual who calls upon his name will receive Hashem's salvation. This, of course, is alluded to in Romans 10.13, but it's spoken of way much earlier than that in the Tanakh in Joel 2.32. Moreover, according to the Torah, this, this present reality, this personal acceptance of Yeshua, is the only sign of a genuine relationship between a holy God and his people. And you can reference John fourteen six through twenty one, as well as Hebrews chapter eight verse ten. So, God at once to dwell with us. He promised He would dwell with us. He sent His Son who dwelt with us, and now the Son promises that that if we call upon His name, that God will dwell with us. So is this the fullness that we can look forward to? Well. Maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. Surely it is the present reality that we experience right now. And surely it is a lasting dwelling, because God will never leave us once we call upon his name. But the Feast of Sukkot, if you'll recall, is a holy convocation that speaks of corporate involvement. Remember, God wants to dwell with his people corporately. He doesn't just want to dwell with individuals. He wants all of his people to experience his indwelling presence. So we have to ask ourselves, we have to tease ourselves with this Sha'ila, this question. Is there still some future dwelling with men that Hashem is waiting for? What does our prophetic scripture from Jeremiah for this point say? Let's read it. Jeremiah 31.33 from our outline point says, quote, I will be their God, and they will be my people. End quote. It's a corporate promise. God wants to be with all of us. God is consistent in his intentions. He wants to dwell with us. That's right. So when we invite God in on a personal level, when we embrace his son Yeshua, we are, in fact, aligning ourselves with the very purposes that God has stated way back in the book of Exodus, followed through to the book of Leviticus. We've looked at the Ezekiel passage, and we've looked now at Jeremiah. So we know that God wants to dwell with us, and God has made a way for us to begin the process of dwelling with Him again by individually accepting His Son Yeshua, the dwelling begins. God begins to move close to us on an individual basis. But God wants to dwell with us corporately too, people. Have you ever asked yourself this question as a Christian? Do you think God is happy that Israel has still 
corporately rejected his son. I don't think it makes God very happy that Israel still corporately walks in blindness. Oh yeah, we still need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122 verse 6. There's a promise attached to praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Sha'alu shalom, Yerushalayim, Yishla'u havaik. They shall prosper that love thee. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, people. Don't ever stop. Because God has promised that he is going to dwell with his people. And on an individual level, the down payment has been made by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And Baruch Hashem, individual Jews and Gentiles, have been running into Messiah for thousands of years. But God wants to dwell with his people corporately. And so there is a future Sukkot that we must look forward to. And so with this, at about 30 minutes into the commentary, I'm going to call it Part A. And when we return, we're about in the middle of page 3. Let's talk about this future aspect of Sukkot and poise ourselves and anticipate the return of God's presence with his people where he will dwell with us corporately, okay? Stay with us.